Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Yes Men. I am Lou DiPietro, and alongside me to my left, as always, is Doug Williams. Today, as we record this podcast, it is September 11th, 2013, and we want to open today's show just uh, by talking a little bit about the events of September 11th, 2001. Uh, It's been 12 years now, but I know no one will ever forget where they were that day and uh, where they saw what happened in New York City. It's always interesting to see things from a different perspective, and Doug and I are about 10, 12 years apart in age. So for that event, you know, I was 22 years old, 21 years old, fresh out of college, working nights, was asleep. My dad called me and said, have you you've been watching the news? I was working out in Florida at the time. He's like, are you watching the news? I'm like, well, no, I was asleep. I just got home from work at like three in the morning. And I turned it on and sat there mesmerized, you know, to my television all, all morning watching, you know, New York City, which I grew up in and around and spent hours and hours and days in New York City as a child just watching the, the carnage and what was happening because of the, the terrorist attacks. 9-11 was unlike anything anybody will ever go through again, especially for the people who are from the New York area. I think um, I was in fifth grade, and I remember getting called out of class. We went to the gym, and uh, we were told by our principal what had happened. There's you know been a, a an accident, you know, at first it was called, you know, there's been a plane crash and what turned into be a series of plane crashes. And there were a few kids in, in my school who, you know, immediately started crying. They had parents who, who lived some, some kids started crying because their parents lived in New York or worked in New York. It had nothing to do with where they were, but at first there was just sheer panic because we didn't know what areas were safe. We had heard that there was a plane in Pennsylvania. We had heard, that there was a plane at the Pentagon. Everyone, you know, there, it was pure chaos. And, uh, you know, everybody, the thing about 9-11 is that when you're from around here, and, you know, I mean that by, you know, we're working here today in Stanford, and I'm from Connecticut, and Lou, you're from the New York area. And mm-hmm. when you're from around here, you always know somebody who lost someone, know somebody who was affected, knows somebody who was on their way to work or, or took the day off or something yep. like that. So it's impossible to forget no, I mean, you know, a, a good friend of mine, her and her family lost, uh, her uncle was a FDNY captain who um, was one of the first responders into the South Tower and, you know, never made it out. So September 11th is always, you know, I always think of her, you know, just her, her loss and, and her family and, and one of our former interns here. I mean, you know, her father was lost in the in the attacks as well. So it's it hits home at work, at play, everywhere, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, no one I, I know love you know, I was not affected by a loss. I can't imagine that. You know, that, that's just something I'm, I'm thankful for. But on the other hand, I always have to pause and remember those who, who have been affected by this, you know, both that day and going forward. I mean, I have, oddly enough, and I actually made this my Facebook status this morning. Um, I have, from a previous job, we went to the Pentagon in 2006. I worked for WWE at the time. And uh, Bobby Lashley, one of our superstars, was a he's in an ex-Army Ranger. And so he visited the Pentagon with another one of our performers, and, you know, there's, I was there to cover it for the website. We had a photographer, a couple of security guys. There was like six or seven of us, and we took a tour of the Pentagon, talked to some Pentagon workers, talked to some members of the Department of Defense. And at the end of the, at the, end of the tour, one of the, one, of the, the, uh, one of the Armed Forces members there gave us all a piece of the Pentagon wall that was breached, you know, when the when the plane crashed into the Pentagon on September 11th. And it's easily the most eerie, I, I don't know what to call a souvenir, t- 
token. I don't know what to call it. It's easily one of those eerie things I have in my possession because it's from that day and it's, you know, it makes you think of, it makes me think of September 11th every time I see it. But, you know, it's cool to have. It's kind of a reminder that from the ashes we rise again and, you know, we're broken but not, you know, destroyed. So that's kind of a, kind of, kind of a, a semi somber but going forward a cool memory I have just from, from being in the Pentagon that day. The thing about 9 11 was that it was pure proof that, that in, that kind of situation, our country does nothing but come together. That's been proven by a lot of events that, ha- you know, negative things that happen in our country. We pull together. We make the most out of them as positives. We mourn as a culture. And I think uh, the United States is fantastic at that. What's really just, you know, shocking a- about 9-11 is how pedestrian it was because nobody that was killed was doing anything out of the ordinary. They were at work. They were at their desk. They were flying to Los Angeles. Yes. (laughs) You know? It's just, it's scary to think about the fact that everybody thought their day was so normal until it took a turn, and it was such a beautiful day. Obviously, like I said, I I was in Florida at the time, and it was, you know, September in in Central Florida is one of the more bearable weather times. But from what I remember, I remember that day being probably, what, like in the 60s or 70-ish, kind of just a nice, beautiful September day. You know, eight hours into it became a national nightmare. And I remember I... It's weird because there is about to be a generation of people who are a little bit younger than myself who probably don't remember it. And I'm just on that border of being able to remember what it felt like because I was in fifth grade. And when you're that young, you think you know what's happening. But then when you're my age now, you realize you had no idea. Right. And I remember asking my parents, like, you know, because my middle school class, we lost two kids. Two of my friends lost their dads. And I remember thinking, telling my parents, saying, Mom, Dad, like, I'm sure they're just walking home on the Merritt Parkway. You know, they're, they're just, they don't have a ride. There's nowhere to get a car. I'm sure they're just, you know, on their way home. And my parents were like, you know, yeah, I'm sure. But I think they knew. The, know, the things a mother and a father say right. to a 10-year-old who doesn't right. quite understand the enormity right. of the situation, right? Um, um, you know, you bring that up. And, and I, I think this morning I was watching, you know, the annual reading the names down at the 9-11 memorial. And one of the one of the guys who was reading the names said, you know, they, they read the names and they stop to honor their loved ones as well. And he said that exactly what you just said. There's now a generation of children that knows when the next Justin Bieber concert is or when the iPhone is coming out, but they don't know about 9-11. And, you know, when I was in school, U.S. history, we never really got past about 1940. So I'm, I'm assuming it's, it's no different today in school. So they may never learn about that in a history class, so to speak. So, you know, this guy was was saying that this, this should be made a National Day of Remembrance, officially a, not a holiday, but officially like a, you know, a day of remembrance. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it brings to mind what you just said, that there's now a whole generation of kids. Anyone under the age of 18, really, do they know what happened? You know, they they know what happened, but do they know they don't have a memory of it because they were, you know, five, six years old. Yeah. And that's and, only going to get that's only gonna get worse. So many kids don't have an appreciation for history. I mean, and, and that's not an insult. It's just, you know, some people don't appreciate history. They're not history buffs. And that's it's a dangerous thing to think about that there are there is this generation that may not ever really appreciate, understand how important an event this was in our country's history. So just because it's recent doesn't mean it's, you know, it's unimportant. So I guess we should switch gears. Yeah, uh, you know, we can we somber. can move to baseball. Uh, baseball is sort of what brought 
New York back together a little bit a couple couple weeks after 9-11 when the Mets took the field back in uh, back in Chase Stadium. Mike Piazza hit that home run that everybody remembers that was, you know, just one of those moments that you couldn't script any better yeah. from Hollywood. And then the Yankees, you know, going all the way to the World Series that year and Mr. November. And it sports sort of brought the country back to normalcy a little bit. Yeah, it was a <clears> distraction. <throat> More than anything, it was a distraction. Using the word distraction... The, the Yankees are going through another tough time, but at the same time, they're closer than almost as close as they've ever been all season. I, I remember being in the clubhouse a week or so ago, and in, in one of the postgame you know, scrums, uh, I believe it was, David, it was either David Robertson or Brett Gardner, and I don't remember who said it, but one of them said, I'm a firm believer that until you're six out with five to go, you're still in it. And that seems to have been the last month, if not more, for the Yankees and several other teams. It's just the Yankees, you know, lost three out of four to Boston. They lost the first game in Baltimore the other night. And here they stand still only a couple games out in the wild card. The Indians, the Orioles, them, the Royals kind of all jockeying for position behind the Rays, who are falling back a little bit behind Oakland and, and or Texas, depending on who happens to be the AL West leader and who happens to be the wild card leader at that time. And they're just, with 18 games to go, they're, they're still in it. And they're still fighting. I mean, just yesterday, uh, picked up Brendan Ryan from Seattle, which brings to mind, you know, how badly, I mean, I don't think Derek Jeter is hurt, but just how bad is Derek Jeter's situation that when will he play again? And why did they need to go out and get an outside shortstop? I mean, they have guys like Gonzalez and Lillibridge down the Myers, but... What is it that made them bring in a guy like Brendan Ryan? I think I, I think the Brendan Ryan acquisition actually is pretty smart. I was thinking about it last night. It's an eerie an eerie comparison. I don't know if it makes any sense, but but Brendan Ryan and Bucky Dent. <laughs> I don't know if it's the fact that the Yankees have a strong chance of playing in another one game playoff game, but I can see you know Brendan Ryan putting one in the first row. You know, walk off against uh, somebody in the in the yep. one game playoff. Bucky Dent wasn't known for, for his, his hitting offense, at yeah. all, and, and Brendan Ryan is 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 just like that. He's apparently scouts say he's the best defensive shortstop in baseball. Well, he's that, led the league in defensive WAR twice right. in his career, so and, I mean that's that's something. And so I think what happened was I think Brian Cashman made this move as soon as Eduardo Nunez tried to turn a double play by touching on the bag and doing everything himself, and then he made another throwing error later. Uh, I don't think Mark Reynolds has ever worked so hard in his life to catch the ball. <laughs> And Eduardo Nunez is a defensive liability. We all know that. But we all seem to think in the back of our minds that his hitting makes up for it when in reality, yes, he's fast. He makes some exciting plays. But he's just not that good of a hitter. He's definitely not a power hitter. He's a 250 hitter. And I think their view is that with Brendan Ryan, they're not losing that much offensively because without Derek Jeter, they don't they don't have much of it to begin with. Right, it's 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 more of a what they gain in defense completely outweighs what they lose in offense situation. I mean, Ryan's a I believe one ninety two hitter this season. He's a two thirty eight career hitter, so you know he's not exactly uh, not exactly Jeter out there or you know Cal Ripken. But and the Yankees have found out that there's really no downside to paying very little for a guy like this because right. <clears throat> Brendan Ryan's been sitting in Seattle for a long time and losing a lot. He's coming to a team in the middle of a race. Who knows? He yeah. could get hot. He's a major league hitter. He has the ability to hit. I understand he's hitting 192. Well, his his hitting claim to fame is he was the last out of Phil Humber's uh, perfect game in Seattle a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, you never that's, want I mean, that, that's, that's his hitting claim to fame. That's not how you want to be remembered. So 
there's just no downside to getting him here. And especially if A-Rod, you know, has a muscle issue now, he, he says he's fine and you may have to DH. You have more options now. You have Nunez who can play third and you can put Brendan Ryan at short and Mark Reynolds or Lyle over Bay at first. And then yeah. Mark Reynolds can play third or As third. can David Adams. Right. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just don't think that they have the confidence in David Adams' bat. I think that they made this move as kind of like a security blanket. But I think he may play over Nunez. Uh, I, I, I really believe that. Well, here, I, I was looking last night, and this is, you know, the Yankees have already used a franchise record in players. And at some point, Brendan Ryan is going to extend that franchise record. At some point, you know, Mike Zagurski, when he gets into a game, is going to extend that, that record at some point. And anyone else they may add. I mean, right now, the 40-man roster is pretty much packed. I would assume the eventual 40-man move for Brendan Ryan is either going to be putting Michael Pineda on the 60-day disabled list or just designating one of the bullpen guys they've called up for assignment. Um, either way, it's going to add another player to the 50-plus they've already used. But just to kind of illustrate how bizarre this season has been, I went on a baseball reference this morning, and I just clicked sort by games played. And came up with what the Yankees lineup would be if you used the nine guys who have played the most games. And it actually worked out perfectly that if you shift one guy from his natural position to another one, he can play. It's a lineup. So with, whatever, 17, 18 games to go, Robinson Cano, 144 games. Brett Gardner, 143. Ichiro, 136. Beginning of the year, you probably could have said that would have been about right, right? I mean, you know, Ichiro and Gardner, your center and right fielder. Cano is your second baseman, all-star you know, top player at this point. The next three guys down, Lyle Overbay has played 127 games. Lyle Overbay was signed the weekend before spring training ended on a three-day tryout because the Yankees were trying to look for a better upgrade over Juan Rivera for a fill-in first baseman for Mark Teixeira for a month or so, or so they thought. Yeah, it's been great. And 127 games later, Lyle Overbay has played the fourth most games on the Yankees. <clears throat> Number five at 118 games is Vernon Wells, who, again, was acquired the final week of spring training. When Granderson was hurt, he was brought in to be, you know, the big right-handed hitting outfielder. And then when Granderson came back six weeks into the season, shift into a fourth outfielder, plays a lot against lefties kind of role. 118 games and a lot of flack later for his various failures, I guess, for lack of a better word, since April. He has played the fifth most game on the Yankees. Number six, 97 games, Chris Stewart. A career backup catcher who is expected to be in at best a timeshare with Francisco Cervelli. One that based on Cervelli's April, you expected he would lose and become the lower half of. And he's played the six most games on the Yankees. And he's playing now with strained ligaments in his foot. And with Austin Romine out with a what looks like to be a concussion, he could be pretty much the everyday guy down the stretch. 7, 8, and 9, by the way, just for reference, are Jason Nix, 87, Travis Hafner, 81, and Nunez, 77. And the only one that has a chance to catch them is Romine, who's played 60 games, but if he misses one game, he's not going to catch any of them. So, or Nunez, anyway, is the only one. Those are the only 10 guys that will that look like they're going to play 60 games for the Yankees. Granderson's at 44, Soriano's at 43, so if they play every day, they can get there, but... That speaks to just what Joe Girardi has done this year, that if you put together a starting lineup of the nine guys who've played the most games for his team, Eduardo Nunez at probably, we'll say, 90 games by the end of the year is going to be in that nine spot. 
Yeah, I would agree. I, I I can't say that Joe Girardi hasn't done a fantastic job. I do. I I do think that sometimes he overmanages now that he has a lot of players. I will say that I think a lot of the credit goes to the guys that you just mentioned. A lot of the credit goes to Lyle Overbay, who has been so clutch for the Yankees, has played, in my opinion, gold glove caliber first base for them, and has made Mark Teixeira seem like, you know, he really doesn't even exist. And now that he has the combination of Mark Reynolds, the Yankees are covered at first base. He's done a really great job. Vernon Wells was carried the Yankees in May and April. And that can't be understated because those games now are are just as important as the games <laughs> they're playing today. Those games count just as much right. as the games they're playing today. Exactly. Um, and and I think that guys like Jason Nix and, and Travis Hafner, you look at their stats now and they're not great. But Travis Hafner at one point was hot and winning games for the Yankees. And those games, like you said, matter just as much now as they, do, as they did then. So, he had a huge April and May too. Right. So I, at some point, you have to credit the fact that, A, Brian Cashman brought these guys in from the scrap heap. No one had any idea that they had anything left. He brought them in. And, B, you have to credit the guys themselves because they are minimally skilled. You know, they, they don't have a lot of talent, and they made something of it. They pulled together as a team, and, and they really, in a lot of ways, made this Yankee season exciting because they September, have maximized they have maximized their potential. Right. Is the best way to say Yankee it. fans should be so thankful that September is at all exciting. Yep. Like so thankful. Even if they don't make the playoffs, these games are huge and they're fun to watch. Do Yankee fans even know what it's like to have a team that that when they hit a home run, the announcers are pretending to act like it's a big deal? No. These home runs are a big deal. These games are a big deal. We don't know what it's like to watch a team where whether they win or lose, they're still going to the same place. You know, any anyone under the age of let's see, nineteen ninety four was nineteen years ago. Anyone maybe your age or lower has never seen a quote unquote bad Yankees team. I mean, two thousand eight is the only year since the strike they've missed the playoffs, and even then they were in it till the final week. Yeah. So it's it's not like they were you know it's not like they were the the Astros, who have been out of it since the All-Star break. This was briefly, I will say this, this was briefly my my favorite Yankee team. I still go back to, you know, when I first started loving the Yankees, 1998 through probably 2003. That era was probably my favorite group of Yankees. But for a while there, when the Yankees were 12 games over 500 <laughs> with all of these backups on their roster, I so thoroughly enjoyed watching them play. Because every night it was somebody else. And they all seemed to be enjoying themselves. When they turned the triple play, I think it was in April, and they just looked like they were having fun. And it doesn't mean that I don't love this Yankee team now, now that they have some some stars back. It just it felt like something that Yankee fans haven't experienced. It's winning when we're not supposed to. Right. And it's just, again, it speaks to what Girardi has done, where if you look at the guys who have played, the, the ten guys who have played the most games for his team, outside of three starters, you have two guys picked up at the end of spring training, a platoon catcher, a guy who probably wouldn't have even made the roster if Derek Jeter was healthy, and Jason Nix. A couple of, you know, Hafner and Nunez, a couple of platoon guys, depending on the situation, and then a catcher who started the year in AAA. John Farrell is going to most likely win manager of the year in the American League because Boston was terrible last year, and they're running away <laughs> with the AL East right now. 
But if the Yankees make the playoffs, I wouldn't be surprised if Joe Girardi makes makes it a run for Farrell's money and even garners a handful of first place. I votes. think if the Yankees make the playoffs, Joe Girardi wins manager of the year. I think if they don't make the playoffs, he won't. Because I think if they make the playoffs, then you look at John Farrell and Joe Girardi. Forget about last year. He didn't manage them last year. He managed them this year. I'm right. talking about John Farrell. So what's the big deal? The Red Sox have great players on their roster. They have a terrific lineup. Why is it so impressive that they've been good? <clears throat> this year, Joe Girardi has been dealing with a team that hasn't had a great roster this year. So he, in my mind, if the Yankees make the playoffs, he should win because the Red Sox make the playoffs, the Yankees make the playoffs. They're even in that regard. Got to give it to Girardi. If they don't make the playoffs, I understand giving it to Farrell. No, you, you make a very good argument there. Um, you know, it's up to the voters to decide. But, you know, Girardi and the guys said early in April, it's kind of hold down the fort till the reinforcements come and everybody comes back. And here we are on September 11th, and we're still kind of waiting for the reinforcements to come back in some spots, and they're still holding down the fort. So. And last week we talked about the Rays, who are still plummeting. And uh, I love Joe Madden, as you know. I think he's one of the best coaches, if not the best coach in baseball. But he gets very philosophical sometimes. I don't know if you saw his post-game comments last night. He said he's, like, looking for this moment. It's like he's talking about something hypothetical like a, a player or a moment to, to cat, like be a catalyst for this team and get them going. And I, I think that there gets to a point where you have young pitchers who aren't used to throwing this many innings. Yep. You have a lineup that's very inconsistent, and now that Myers is struggling so much, it's just Longoria, like it was just Cano earlier this season, which really hurts an offense. Mm -hmm. And their team has a ton of one out of four players. And what I mean by that is there's versus left-handed pitching with a DH, versus left-handed pitching without a DH, versus right-handed pitching versus a DH with a DH, and versus right-handed pitching without a DH. And they have players that can only go into one of those slots. They have, like, Delman Young against lefties and Sam Fold against righties. There's no consistency yeah. to their team. So Ben Zobers plays whatever position happens to be open that day. Yeah. So and does Sean Rodriguez, really. And I think that if they, in all honesty, this is how I feel about this team, they do have great pitching. I think that their pitchers are probably a little bit exhausted. But I think if they played in a regular stadium that other teams were very much used to, unlike the trop and the turf and everything like that, I think they'd be a... Team five games below the Yankees. Tropicana Field does throw some monkey wrenches into things. Yeah, it psychs guys very, out. It's Tropicana Field is awful. Let's let's be fair. Just the the layout, the catwalks, everything. It, it's not ideal for baseball. But you know what? They're making it work. They've been in the playoff hunt the last five six years now. They've changed the culture. The culture, excuse me, from what the Tampa Bay Devil Rays were in the you know the 1990s when they first started in the early 2000s. And if you talk to John Flaherty about it, he'll tell you the same thing. Just how the culture there was: any win is a big win because nobody expected them to do much. Right, and so. they they are teaching their pitchers to throw changeups, which is so smart. They start teaching it at single A and rookie leagues. Avoid the sliders and curveballs. If you throw them, fine, but focus on the changeups, and you look at every pitcher they have, and mm -hmm. they have a good changeup. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is Joe Madden has done a terrific job bringing this team close together. I'm just saying... I think that when opposing teams go into the trop, the relievers aren't used to warming up 
in the field. <laughs> yeah. The hitters aren't used to fielding in the field, and they're not used to the way the the ball looks coming out of the hand. I just think the fact that the Rays are used to it and no other team is. It's a big home field advantage. Right. I, I can see where you're going there. And, it, and it, they're it not is. used to playing with cowbells in the background. Well, that's true. Well, you can hear that because there's nobody there. So you can kind of hear everybody in the audience. That's which true. Is kind of a shame because the Rays are a good team and their attendance is usually pretty low. Uh, it's kind of a shame for them, actually. But... Um, you know, we've got, like I said, we've got two and a half weeks to go. The Yankees aren't out of it until they're out of it. They could be in it. They could be out. Who knows what's going to happen down the stretch. All I know is that we will probably be sitting here at the same time next week having the same conversation about how everything is uneven, and yet the only thing that's normal is chaos. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true. What's so interesting is that next week, the only thing, in my opinion, the only thing that can make that not the case is if the Rays play good baseball. If the Rays play good baseball, and the Yankees keep playing like four wins, three losses baseball, yep. the Yankees will be done. Your worst-case scenario is that the Yankees and Orioles split the next two games, the Yankees get swept in Boston, and Tampa goes on a hot streak. Right. Because then it becomes a race between Tampa and Cleveland, really. Well, before we go uh, for this edition of the S-Men, we want to do salute uh, one team that is in the playoffs in the Yankee organization. The Trenton Thunder uh, last night took a one nothing lead in the Eastern League Championship Series against Harrisburg. Big five-run uh, third innings spurred them on to an 8-2 win. Game two is Wednesday night in Trenton. It's the Thunder's final home game of the year uh, as games three through five, if necessary, will be in Harrisburg based on EL rules, saying the West Division champ hosts the final three games of the championship series. Uh, our own uh, Matthew Stucco, our new video uh, colleague, was in Trenton last night gra- gathering some stuff, which you'll be able to see on the, the dot-coms here uh, over the next few days. The interwebs. The interwebs. They have that on computers now. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got some good stuff. I, of course, will be here with the Baby Bombers playoff blog as long as Trenton goes, so the they, next few days. Trenton Thunder right now are much more important to this Yankees team. Their success is much more important to this Yankee team than you think because I think the Yankees are looking at their farm system and it's a little bit bleak, but it's clear that these guys are winners and that they have a decent to good team down there, even though AAA is rough. You talk about a guy like Joe Madden who makes the most out of his talent and he's got different talent every year. Tony Franklin deserves an absolute shout-out. He is... For my money, and I would say this even if I didn't work for an offshoot of the Yankee organization, he is, for my money, probably one of the top three, if not the top minor league managers in the entire scope of minor league baseball. What he does year in and year out at what many people will tell you is the toughest level. Double A is the toughest level because Triple A is, you know, Triple A for all the, the prospects that are there is full of guys like Dan Johnson and Chris Buchak who. Aging ex-major leaguers looking for a shot, stash guys, you know, random prospects. You know, it's 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 a good level of baseball, don't get me wrong, but it's it's not where all the prospects are. There's really not a lot of stashies in double-A unless you're the Blue Jays. They actually kind of tend to stash a few guys in double-A. But what he does every year in Trenton, you know, this is the fifth time they've made the playoffs in uh, seven seasons with him. You know, every year, and now he's got... Slade Heathcott, Tyler Austin, Ramon Flores, Mason Williams, Nick Turley. Six of the top, I don't know, 20 probably, I would say. It depends on where you want to place Turley. Gary Sanchez, I forgot to mention him too. Six of the top 20 prospects in the organization have all spent a good chunk of time at AA this year. And there they are, two games away from winning the championship. So between him and Luis Soho, the Yankees are set up in that mid-minor league system with 
great managers who know the Yankee way and can get the most out of players no matter what or where they're deployed. All right, well, please stay tuned uh, on that front. When we come to you next week, we will have updates, obviously, by nothing we have we can do we just have to wait and watch but we will have updates on where the yankees are and where the trenton thunder are and uh hopefully hoisting the el championship somewhere in Harrisburg by that point and if you're if you're still listening which i hope you are uh and you have any ideas for a guest you would like um we could talk to anybody sports writers anybody you're interested in it yes we can reach out to people so tweet at me at doug williams yes or at lou at lou DePietro, yes let us know who you'd like to hear from. We are free and easy. We'd love to have guests on. We want to make this an interactive show. We want you to be involved. It's Without you, we wouldn't have a show. So, you know, keep keep listening and, and send us some ideas, some guests, some topics you want us to cover, and, and we're on it. And on that note, uh, that's going to be it for us for this week. For Doug Williams, I'm Lou DiPietro saying we'll see you next time.